Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest. We have the bassist for Thomas Rhett, Travis Vance. You're going to hear the story of Travis's time at Berkeley studying music and what made him make the decision to move to Nashville after college. You're also going to hear the story of the making of his debut EP, The Chase, in 2011. And 2011 is also the year that he joined the band of country music superstar Thomas Rhett. I had an awesome time talking to Travis, and I know you guys are going to learn a lot in this episode. I hope you guys enjoy, and we'll see you at the end. How you doing today? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So kind of getting right into your story, you grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. What was your childhood like? Uh, man, it was um, pretty normal. I mean, I traveled a good bit. Uh, my folks like to travel, so I saw some cool stuff growing up, but, you know, public school, um, all that kind of thing. I went through, I had a really great jazz band director growing up who was really important, uh, you know, as a lot of people know who go through public school music education programs. Um, a good teacher can make or break your interest in music over time. I was lucky to have a couple of really good ones. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty weird growing up in Texas. I'm not your I'm not a very stereotypical Texan, like maybe a stereotypical Austinite, but I just can't, I don't do Texas anymore. It's no disrespect to the people who like it. It's just not my scene at all. And, uh, and I can't stand the weather. It's just too hot. It's too hot now, what makes an Austinite differ from a, t- a person from Texas? Well, in the same way that anybody who lives in Nashville is different than pretty much everyone who lives in Tennessee, Austin's kind of the same way, right? It's like, you know, the whole keep Austin weird thing. There's a much more sort of um, artistic, liberal leaning, progressively minded community of folks in Austin compared to the rest of Texas, right? Yeah, same yeah. Nashville with Tennessee, that kind of deal. Um, you know, and I... <laughs> I mean, Nashville and Austin are a lot alike, um, but Nashville has better weather and um, a more national music industry versus Austin, which tends to sort of stay Texas centric. I mean, I'm speaking a little out of class here, but you know what I'm saying. No, yeah. So did you grow up in a musical family or were you kind of the first one in your family to pick up an instrument? No, I did grow up around music a bit. I mean, I wasn't, I'm the first professional musician, at least in a couple of generations. Turns out I had a great uncle, Jack Vance, who was a bass player in a band later and did like Western swing stuff like out in Arizona. Oh, still. I didn't find out about that till much later in life. But yeah, you know, like my mom played piano a little bit. My dad played a little bit of guitar. Uh, I have two sisters and all three of us came up, you know, doing piano lessons. And then we all went through different band programs. My older sister played sax. My little sister played, uh, what did she play? French horn? Maybe? Trumpet? I don't remember. Oh, cool. Anyway, both of them are in the sciences. I'm the only one who was dumb enough to keep going and play music for a living. (laughs) Hey, well, it worked out for you. Now, was the bass the first instrument you picked up? Uh, no, learned how to play piano first, like a lot of people, you know, like did kinder music, I think when I was like four or five, and then went into piano and did piano until I was in like fifth grade. Uh, and then I went to sixth grade orientation, and my older sister was already in band, and the band instructor who my older sister loved told our whole, you know, orientation program that they really needed a tuba player in the band, and I was like, hmm. 
you know, I like to fit in and I like to do things that people need. So I learned, I started on euphonium, low brass instrument, and moved to tuba. And that kind of segued pretty nicely into bass. Uh, one, because I played tuba in sixth grade, then in seventh grade, they started a jazz band. And I told my folks I wanted to get a bass guitar so I could be in jazz band. And it was the same clef, right? Like notation wise, like, so yeah. I already had to read bass clef, which was great. And then again, it was just this sort of like goofy thing that I have where I'm like, oh, I just want to go where people need me, you know? Okay, I'll go play bass in the jazz band. But then pretty quick, I was like, oh, cool. I can play Beatles tunes and R.E.M. tunes and like whatever I want to on bass. And I had a great private bass teacher who then was after... I like picked up bass, like picked it up pretty quick because I already had background and knew how to read. But then I was, went to my teacher and was like, hey, I really want to learn like Pearl Jam songs and like Primus songs. And, you know, he was a North Texas like bebop jazz head uh, named Rich Glass, tremendous bass player. But he, uh, he humored me, taught me a few Pearl Jam songs, a couple, actually more Primus songs. And then uh, he was like, Hey, have you ever heard of this Jaco Pastorius guy or like Victor Wooten? Do you know about these guys at all? Like, you know, world-class bass players and I didn't. So then that just solidified that I was a bass player. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is, this is my thing. Gotcha. So, I mean, you were already playing music, but would you say that bands like Primus and Pearl Jam were really the first bands that you listened to that you kind of had a big connection to that made you realize, oh, dang, people do this for a living. Like, this might be something I want to do. I think it might have been. Like, I mean, so I'm, I was born in 1980 and like the grunge, like Seattle thing blew up when I was like 13, yeah. right? It was like, that was my thing. And so I don't know if it was necessarily those bands, they were just kind of my favorites, but like that whole thing sort of in a way was, it was really great as far as being uh, inspirational to me. Cause you know, you had Pearl Jam, you had Nirvana, you know, this uh, Soundgarden, all those like awesome grunge bands. And then you had really weird ones like Primus and, you know, a lot of West Coast stuff that was just out there and I loved it. And, you know, that was like inspirational on the sort of artistic side of music for me. Yeah. Uh, and really kind of pumped my tires to, to stick with bass and like the rock and roll side of things. But then I was also exposed to a lot of like great sort of jazz and fusion stuff like Jocko Pistorius, Victor Wooten. And then I had this great jazz band instructor in high school. So I knew about like Stan Kenton and, um, you know, uh, oh God, come on brain. I mean like the Miles Davis kind of blue stuff, but then the stuff he did with, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the great arranger. Um, anyway, I knew about, I had a pretty wide scope of music that I was into and, um, yeah, you know, when it came to like being a professional, I will admit I had no idea how to do that until I was much, much older. I just yeah. knew I had a passion for music and wanted to do it and didn't give myself much of a plan B. My plan B was like, oh, if, you know, indie rock and like jazz don't work out, then there's always just pop and kind of more commercial stuff I could go do. That was my plan B. Um Anyway, that's a long way of saying that, yeah, I mean, I loved a lot of cool bands, but I had no idea from a business perspective what I was doing until I was much older. For sure. Now, going through high school, did you have bands that you were kind of playing out in your local area or were you doing the, just doing the jazz band stuff at school? Right. No, good question. I was in 
I was in a number of bands. Yeah. Like all very weird. Uh, I was in like an electro kind of goth pop band. Like we loved the cure and the church and weird bands like that, Depeche Mode, et cetera. What's but the then, best band name you guys had from oh, that era? Okay. So then I was going to say, I was in this like sludge punk kind of goofy band with a bunch of buddies. I played drums in that band. I'm not a drummer, but I played drums anyway. <laughs> and we were called Pacemaker Bob and the Wicked Fat Kids. <laughs> That's awesome. It was a really, really good one. Now, coming out of high school, you decided to go to Berklee College of Music, which is obviously a huge dream for any musician. How did that come about? I mean, uh, coming from Texas, like, uh, I'm sure going to Berkeley isn't a normal thing. And I'm sure that was a very rigorous, like, audition process to get into. Well, so I was kind of groomed to go to the University of North Texas, which is in Denton, which is about 45 minutes away from Fort Worth, where I grew up. Uh, I went to jazz camps there, the whole nine. Um, and, and UNT has some unbelievable musicians that have come out of there. Um, a lot of great drummers. Matt Chamberlain came out of there. A uh, guy named Earl Harvin. Um, there's, there's dozens, dozens more. It's whatever. Uh, but it's sort of last minute, like senior in high school, I had this weird revelation where I decide, I, I, I don't know, that I love jazz. I really do. Like, I still listen to it quite a bit. But, and I'm, I hope nobody from UNT ever sees this or they're going to hate me. It just felt like UNT was like a competition, like who could be bop the hardest and who could sort of out uh, gunsling the next guy, like not in a chopsy way. It's, it's hard to describe. Anyway, I, I also had some personal things happen that involved Denton, Texas. And I was like, I can't go there. Like, I just can't go live there. And was actually going to drop out of school. Um, I was going to drop out of high school. I was like done. I knew I was going to play music for a living. Yeah. So quick high school. And I was getting uh, audition tape together for Soup de Soleil. Cause I could play keyboards. I could play bass. I could play horns. That's real cool. uh, I could play percussion. I was like, Oh, I'll just go be in the pit band for the circus. And my parents flipped out <laughs> and we're like, that I, I don't remember where my mom saw this article. She saw an article somewhere about Berkeley College of Music and was like, oh, look, they do rock and roll there. Um, that's not how my mom talks. And, but she sent me and my dad to go check it out. And I was into it. I was just like, oh, cool. This is a big city, like middle of Boston, the Northeast. Like this is way far from what I know growing up. Um, I, was in, I was in kind of an unhealthy place physically and mentally as so I finished high school too. Um, I'm a big advocate for mental health awareness and I was not in a very mentally healthy place. Yeah. So it felt to me like going as far away as possible was the answer um, as it does for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're sitting on a lot of problems. You're like, what if I just moved 1400 miles away? <laughs> um, I was able to get that opportunity once and it worked out. And when I went to Berkeley, there was no audition process to actually get in. Um, I was sort of at the beginning of the era where it's like, man, if you got the money, you can come. Uh, you may not get a lot out of it if you're not serious about this, but if you got the money, you can be here. And then once you get there, you audition to find your, your ratings, as they call them. And that, that puts you in different ensembles, gives you different uh, sort of, it, it starts you off somewhere. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I loved it though. It was great. Now, do any memories stick out from there? And did you have any classmates that went on to become big stars or just are still working professionally in the industry as well? 
Oh, for sure. Ton, not tons, but quite a few pals. I was in, uh, <laughs> I was in a all bass ensemble where we just played. It was all basses and a drummer and it wasn't like fully arranged out. It was like a bunch of us just like playing unison. Like we did teen town or like, you know, some of the Charlie Parker on me, but, but I was in that ensemble with a guy named Owen Biddle, who was the bass player in the roots, oh, the, cool. not the current one, but the one before him. Um, and Owen is bad news, man. He's a good player. <laughs> and then the other guy in that was a guy named Tony Gray who uh, is John McLaughlin's nephew and a monster bass player. Uh, also the current guy from the roots, Mark, he was there at the same time as me. We didn't have a whole lot of classes together, but we knew each other. Then, uh, yeah, like there was a dude named, oh God, I can't remember his, his real name, but guy named Ray Ray. He's this trumpet player. Dude was in Prince's band. I had the good fortune to do um, Jay Leno before Leno went off the air with TR, Tom Threat. Yeah. And uh, we go to watch Ricky Minor and Tonight Show band rehearse. And I was just like, oh man, Ray Ray's playing trumpet right on. And like got to go say hey to a buddy. That was really cool. Yeah. One of my roommates from college is doing film scores out in LA. His name's Matt, Mar Matt Margison. He's done all the Kingsman movies. He did a Tim Burton movie recently. It's got a really long title. I can't remember. Uh, he did Eddie the Eagle. He's done like, he, oh, have you seen that Pam and Tommy show on Hulu? Yeah. Yeah, my ex-roommate scored that. Oh, really? Uh, That's sick. Yeah, yeah he's, he's out there really doing it. It's cool. He, he went to LA when I went to Nashville and we both were like, oh, good luck, bud. Um, yeah, anyway, there's a lot of people who, who I went to school with who are still doing it, man, like really doing it, which is super fun. Yeah. Now you mentioned the move to Nashville. What was that decision like? Uh, I mean, being right next door to New York or maybe going to LA like your friend, what made you choose Nashville? Um, it's a good question. And honestly, it, was, it wasn't it was a super well-informed decision. It's worked out. <laughs> it was that uh, I was tired of the cold. I couldn't do another winter up there. Because, pff, I did five winters in Boston and it sucked. Um, you know, it toughened me up. Like I can deal with winter a lot better now, but man it was tough yeah so I was like I can't do New York and like the concrete jungle thing like as much as a kid from Texas I was like oh cool man I'm gonna move to like a big city um after like five years you know I was ready to be around a little bit more nature a little bit more you know I like going on hikes and I like fishing and being on boats and stuff and I don't know it's just tough when you live in New York or you live in Boston yeah uh, that just was kind of a priority for me then, you know, so my options were New York, LA, maybe Chicago. Um, and the, the, I landed on Nashville because the last two years I lived in Boston, I had a car for better for worse. And I would about twice a year drive home to Texas, uh, which is like a two day drive. And Nashville's about halfway between Boston and Texas, Fort Worth, where I grew up. And so I would just stop in Nashville and hang out. And after a couple of times, I was like, man, this place is like real, like the people here are super nice, like, like really nice. Uh, it's a really clean town. Like I started to get a little whiff. I mean, this is like two, I'm talking 01, 02, like a little bit of a whiff that there was more than just country music going on in Nashville. Um, I didn't know exactly what, but I was like, I don't know, man, like, oh. you got guys like Victor Wooten living in Nashville. You got this sort of like rich history of legit sort of prodigy level musicians down in nashville like i like the south i'll give you a whirl you know yeah 
Uh, and it was, it really was that kind of deal where I was done with high school, high school, done with college. Uh, a couple of us from Berkeley kind of all were like, why don't we try Nashville? You know, let's go down and check it out. And four of us kind of moved down into the same apartment complex. And I said, I was going to give it two years. And then if it didn't work out, I might head back up to New York or maybe try my hand at LA. And uh, that was 2003. And this is coming to you from Inglewood, Tennessee. So coming up on 19 years down here, man. There you go. What did those first few years look like for you uh, networking in Nashville, kind of getting your feet wet in town? Right. Hmm. It was very difficult. Very, very difficult. Um, I didn't know a soul in town. Like I moved here cold. Yeah. Right. Like literally nobody. Uh, there was a Berkeley event that would happen like once every month or so. I can't remember. It was like, you know, an alumni get together kind of deal. And I went to a few of those and got, you know, met some people who were living here. Um, but as far as actual, like, I can look back on it now and see it for what it is. Um, at the time, it felt really cool. I was like, oh, man, I'm meeting people, other Berkeley people. They're here. They're working, whatever. Um, but looking back on it, a lot of those were just like everybody standing around going like, you got a gig? No, you got a gig? No, you got a gig for me? No, I don't got a gig for you. You got a gig for me? No, I don't got a gig for you either. It was a lot of that. <laughs> um, you know, a bunch of kids. What do we know? So then a lot of what I or <laughs> I was just working jobs, job jobs to make ends meet, right? And end up ended up working at a coffee shop near Music Row uh, that was run by, or opened up and run by this guy who used to be a monitor engineer who'd worked for like Tanya Tucker and uh, Joe Diffie, all these people. He's this great guy named Brian Stoltzfus and he opened up a coffee shop, hired me. I just was like, oh, I'll learn. And ended up being, it was like the tower records of coffee shop jobs. Like it was so fun. Everybody who worked there was like a musician or an artist kind of person. And like, nobody was in the country music, you know, industry. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of them were weirdos into like noise bands and knew about all those sort of counterculture stuff. A couple of like Nashville native dudes that I got to be friends with. Um, so I kind of got plugged into the, the counterculture of Nashville right away or kind of within the first six months and that was really cool because again like I said I came up listening to like fusion and like primus and tool and stuff so you know finding weirdos who like noise bands uh was really cool for me because I just wasn't wasn't that I was like anti-country music industry I just was more of an artistic mindset so I wanted to start there and that was so let's say that was like 2004 I did that and then man I like along the way would occasionally get thrown some sort of country gigs. I would do, you know, the odd honky tonk out in the middle of nowhere in middle Tennessee somewhere. And you learn 75 tunes, kind of like almost like a Broadway gig. Yeah. Um, and do four hours on, you know, that kind of deal. But I was always trying to more network in the sort of indie rock community. I was just like 10 years early for that. It turns out. Now, now there's a great scene. No, for sure. That's it's definitely uh, taken off a lot, especially like with the success of the basement. Now you have so many underground acts that come through Nashville. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's funny you say the basement. Like there was, so I was in this band for a long time here called Oblio, about seven years. And um, man, it was a really good band, but we just didn't know what we were doing business wise, like at all. Mm -hmm. we, we're, but we were a really good band. 
And if you go to the OG basement right now and look up at all the posters up there, there's like three Oblio posters there because Mike Grimes loved us. That's sick. Bless Mike Grimes till the end of time. Now, fast forward about 10 years. In 2011, you put out uh, Debut AP, The, Ch- the Chase, which was a Soundscapes kind of album. How did you find what? that? Wow. <laughs> I do my research, man. <laughs> That's awesome, man. You sure do. So what was your, uh, like, going into that, what made you want to make a record? And uh, kind of looking back on that now, like, what do you think about that record? Um, so that's a man, good one, dude. Okay. So I always, uh, I had a, another roommate in college. This is a long story. So bear with me. Um, who is a percussionist. He lives in Brooklyn now. He's, I mean, world-class percussionist ended up becoming the musical director for the show, Louie. Um, he's, he's done everything that Louis CK has ever done, including his like upcoming movies and stuff. So oh, he's wow. on the scene as well. But this guy, in college hipped me to a dude named dr didge who was this australian dude named graham and this guy used a uh, old rack mounted lexicon jam man where you just punch in and out first time i'd ever seen anybody do any live looping it was a dude with a didgeridoo right like okay um he was rad by the way graham was awesome yeah uh so then my roommate got Alex Jam and started doing percussion loops. Like he was first dude I'd ever met, knew of that was into doing that, like live looping. I was like, that's rad as hell. So then fast forward, he actually sold me his rack mounted Lexicon Jam Man. I still have it, it's just right over there. Um, I lost the power supply though. And then mm-hmm. they, they've got a hundred better ones. So I started messing around with doing bass loops and like doing percussive stuff on bass and then playing the bass line and then playing a melody up top or like then you know comp and chords or whatever um kind of a la like keller williams was a kind of a dude i didn't particularly love his music i just liked the way he approached it so anyway i started doing all this live bass looping stuff and i moved to nashville with uh Fodera bass guitar that's strung from E to C, which is like too high. You're supposed to string it from B to G. And I had it strung E to C so I could play like guitar melodies up top while I looped my stuff. And I was doing that for a while. Then I kind of gave it up and started being in this indie band. And then I kind of picked it back up. Um, I'm getting to the point, I promise. So then uh, 2010 is when I finally told the dudes in my band, I was like, look, guys, you know, I'm 30 years old. We gave it our shot. Like we had showcases, everything. It's just not really working out. Like I need to go make money and have somebody else pay for the gig, you know? So I quit the band and was just hustling in Nashville. That's kind of when in some ways my true uh, career in Nashville started, even though I moved here in 03, it's not like, it's like my career didn't start until about 2010, which is when, I told the dudes in the band, I was like, all right, I'm quitting my day job. I'm quitting this band. Like, I'm going to go play full, full time. Like, I don't care what I'm giving up, not giving up, giving up, but I'm, I'm putting aside a lot of my artistic aspirations. At least I thought so. So yeah. then I'm playing in this. Uh, I ended up entering a Craigslist ad, got a gig with this wedding band that was awesome. I had a great time playing with those dudes. Um, and like right away, like I did two shows in a weekend with a wedding band was like, Whoa, that's as much as I was making in two weeks at the coffee shop. Like, okay. And then they kind of hit a lull around 2011, like with the the wedding band, 
I didn't have, and I was picking up the odd artist gig, some sort of like, you know, baby acts first, you know, radio tour on a country, uh, small country labels in town I was getting my feet wet there. And then like spring of 2011, it kind of all dried up, right? Like it was, oh, I'm looking at like six weeks of nothing on my calendar. I'm freaking out. And this happens to a lot of people, especially beginning of every year, you know, January, February, as a musician, you're just kind of like, well, this is not a time when there's work. So I'm just going to hope for the best, keep my name out there. And I decided to record a solo bass album. I don't know. Why not? Uh, and so I did that and called it The Chase. I can't remember why. Recorded like four or five things on it. Um, and then again, like I had nothing going on and I knew some dudes in an indie band called Parachute Musical who were going to Texas to do South by Southwest. And they hit me up because they knew I was from Texas and they were like, hey, you know, we're looking to maybe book a show, a couple shows around some South by stuff, like maybe do a show in Fort Worth, maybe do a show in Houston. I don't know. Would you, you know, do you have any recommendations? And I was like, how about this? You know, how about I come I'll drive over. I'll go see my folks. Uh, I'll open for you guys, solo bass, and I'll get us a gig in Fort Worth. And I could probably draw, you know, 80 to 100 people out. We'll have fun doing that, et cetera, et cetera. So then we did that. I did a show in Fort Worth with them, a show in Houston with them. Show in Houston, I invited a friend out who I've gone to like middle school and high school with. She lived down there. Her new husband came with her, this guy named Sam. Uh, I'm doing this solo bass thing, right? You know, I'm just looping. I'm playing songs in 9-8. I'm doing just the dorkiest stuff you could ever possibly imagine. I love it, but, you know, it's pretty dorky. So this dude sees me play, and he's like, dude, like, you can play. Like, what are you doing? Like, what? Do you have a gig? I was like, no, I don't have a gig. Why do you think I'm in Texas playing solo bass stuff? I'm like, well, I don't have a gig. Um, so he said he had a cousin who lived with, a girl who had an, a label act, like a, a big machine imprint country act, and they were auditioning for bands. And he was like, do you want me to put your name in the hat? And I was like, yeah, I don't have a gig. Yeah, throw my name in the hat, great. So he throws my name in the hat. I go audition for them. They were this uh, country act called Eden's Edge. It was a three-piece sort of, uh, you know, proto-bluegrass um, writing on the kind of coattails of success that the band Perry had with When I Die Young, like around yeah. that era, and um, got the gig. That was great. Did the gig with them for about four or five months, five, six months, something like that. Uh, then budgetary concerns, which is a lot of what happens to um, Baby X. They couldn't afford to keep paying me or the rest of the band, really. So they were like, sorry, let me go. Uh, that was a bummer. I went back to hustling, saying yes to everything, said yes to some really bad gigs that paid, but really bad. And so then I'm doing these really bad gigs and their management company called me and they were like, hey, so we know you're not doing Eden's Edge. Sorry. Uh, if you're not doing anything more important, we have a new artist. He needs a band like in like 10 days. Can you be ready in 10 days? I had a casino gig. I was on the second day of a 10 day casino gig. So I was like, I'll be done with the casino gig and then I'll start the rehearsals with this kid the next day. Like, sure. Yeah. What's the kid's name? His name's Thomas Rhett. Okay. I don't care. Whatever. Yeah. Shit. And um, so I was, I finished out the casino gig. I'm like 
had them send me tunes. I'm learning tunes in the hotel room in between casino gigs. And then did a Halloween gig, 2011, uh, finished at 2 a.m. down in Tunica, Mississippi. Loaded out, drove straight home, swapped out gear, splashed some water on the face, drink some coffee, go straight to SIR rehearsal rooms, like no sleep, and met the guy I've been playing for for the last 10 and a half years. And just sort of, there we go. Okay, well, this kid's got it. Like, first show, you know, it was like, done a lot of gigging and there's a thing that you either got or you don't got like it's an x factor sort of thing there's plenty of really talented musicians in the world but with that guy i was just like oh oh there it is there's the thing you're always looking for like right get in front of people they have no idea who he is he's essentially a child he was 21 and like he could get 800 people to just eat out of the palm of his hand i was like okay i'm gonna see where this goes like I'm not doing anything else. Um, so that's a very, I, I, I sort of, I'm thinking I bypassed a few questions you maybe had along the way with that whole story. No, that, you're fine, man. You st- I, starting with that EP, The Chase, it's funny you mention it. That's weirdly how I got my gig. That's crazy. Now, when you were getting sent these first TR demos, did you have that feeling that this was going to be different just through the demos or was when you guys played that first gig that you were like, okay, this is going to be different? I, even rehearsals, I was just like, oh God. All right. He like wanted to do like Beastie Boys covers and he was just like all over the place and young and excited. And that was cool. But I was just like, oh, man. All right. Well, you know, this guy's 10 years younger than me and he seems a little unfocused. We'll we'll, we'll see how this goes. But yeah, first show, first show, like second song. I was just like, this kid is a natural born entertainer. Like you just can't teach this. You either got it like dude's an entertainer. Okay, cool. Let's see if the songs get better and see if, you know, a lot of things get better. And uh, all of it got better. What's it been like being with him since the start and like literally seeing the crowd just grow year after year after year and now selling out amphitheaters and stadiums together? Dude, it's it's cliche. Like it's I, I can't explain it. Like it, what a ride, you know, like going from being just a dude jobbing, doing, you know, C and D level country acts and casinos and weddings and just a job and bass player to like landing with this kid and sort of, you know, I will say it wasn't like it happened overnight. Right. Like that was 2011. Yeah. And he had about six months dry spell, you know, from end of 2011 till about middle of 2012 where there was really no work. I went and took another tour, got to go tour Europe for a couple like about a month and a half with this Canadian country artist, you know, I was still kind of hustling, but I was like, man, I sure hope he calls me back. Yeah. They called me back and it was like, Oh, okay. You're doing like going to go do 60 shows opening for Toby Keith for the back half of 2012. And then it sounds like there's a big tour lined up for 2013 and okay. Yeah, cool. I'm going to hitch my apple cart to this horse and see what happens. So, you know, it was a lot of growing pains, like a lot of growing pains. Um, as a, a professional as an artist as a uh, just a dude you know i've been been on the road with with tr for 10 years and he's i mean it's insane he went from being a 21 year old kid to a 32 year old father of four you know who runs a a very successful business as far as his production company nothing to mention his songwriting but you know just i'm i'm technically a member or a a a what am I trying to say? I'm an employee of his production company. Right. 
what's on the shows, right? So that's a big deal though. I mean, I think there's like 40 of us he has on salary. Wow. That's, that's not a small company. No. Um, but along the way, dude, there were so many growing pains, so many years of like grinding it out. A lot of too many dudes on one bus, um, too many days without getting a shower, a lot of bad food, mm-hmm. um, a lot of being away from home too long. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, you know, learning, seeing him learn how to do it while I was also kind of learning how to do it. I mean, I know how to play instruments and I know how to get on a, get in a vehicle and go from one town to the next, but like how to tour in a sustainably healthy way. Uh, I had a lot to learn. So now after all these years being on the road with him, do you have a favorite song that sits, sticks out in the set that like every night you're like, Oh shoot, this one's coming up. I'm getting pumped. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, there's a couple there's a couple but yeah like so there's there's a song of his called t-shirt oh of course and we have kind of arranged that one to death like it's so fun to play um and it's been show opener show closer it's not the show closer right now but it's sort of in there and there's just like that one's like the like we kind of get away with a lot in that one there's like some like Prince Morris Day in the time moments in there, but then it like rocks like pretty hard at times. Um, I play synth bass on half of that tune. Like it's super fun, has good tempo, you know, just always slams. That's awesome. Uh, just one thing I want to touch on too. I'm really yeah. passionate about uh, lap steel. My grandpa plays lap steel. That's what got me into music. And I know that you play that too. What got you to sit down on the lap steel and do you play a one neck, double neck? Uh, I have a single neck. Oh, it's all packed up. I was going to break it out. <laughs> Where is it? Oh, no. It's actually there. It is. Yeah. So I got this, which is my, my wife got me this for my birthday a couple of years ago. It's a 63. Uh, it's the Desert Fox single neck. I tune it to C6. Um, man, how did I get into it? I got into it because my old band Oblio, we were a four piece and had, we believed in lots of lush arrangements. Then uh, we fired a guy, which is hard when you're in a band, especially if they're your friend, but we fired a guy and he was kind of playing some keys and trumpet and other weird stuff. So I was the one who was like, well, I can also play keys and kind of do the Ray Manzarek thing, like play left hand bass and split the thing and do some stuff like that. But I like, what was it? I think our drummer, his uncle, had this really gnarly old lap steel. And it was at our drummer's house. Uh, that drummer's in this really great band called the Wild Feathers these days, too. A little shout Oh, out. yeah. Yeah. So Ben from the Wild Feathers, his uncle had loaned him a lap steel, or it was just at his house with him and his brother, who's also really musical. And I just was like, hey, can I like mess around with that? I don't know. I um, I grew up playing fretless bass, like almost more than fretted bass. So like an instrument with no frets, like intonation is like, I mean, it's hard, but I worked on it. So I was like, I bet I can figure this out. And so I pretty much just taught myself how to play like a few single line things. Like I can't like rip, I can't do the like, uh, like, you know, shout gospel kind of stuff on, on steel. I'm more a fan of like the Daniel Lanois approach you know, like yeah. ambient whale noises and things like that, like, like creating sonic beds. Um, okay. It's it's a fun palette to play with. But that, yeah, long story short, it was like 
One just showed up at my friend's house and I said, hey, can I borrow that? And spent enough time with it that I was like, no, I really, I like this a lot. This is super fun. Now to close out my interviews, I always like to ask my guests one piece of advice that you'd give to people that are trying to pursue music right now, something that you've learned along the way. There's so many, but one, okay. Okay. The biggest piece of advice I could give you or anyone really is when it comes to being a professional, like, I mean, there's a million things I could talk about as far as artistic approaches, how, you know, technical approaches, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're talking about being a professional, as in like this roof over my head, I pay for it by playing music. The thing that I would say is most important is to know your value as a musician in a dollars and like a true number sense. And what I mean by that is talk to other professionals and talk numbers. Don't talk vagaries. Talk about how much you get paid on a gig. Talk about your salary. Talk about what X pays per day. Talk about what per diem is. Talk numbers. So many people are scared to do it. I am not scared to do it. I mean, I'm not going to do it right here, but like, you know, me, I, I have buddies who know that I'm not scared to talk. They know the level of my gig and they'll call me and I'll talk very real numbers with them. And the reason I say that that's important is that it helps us know our value, one. Two, it helps you from staying in a situation that's maybe not good for you for way too long. And maybe you're squandering part of your career because you think you're getting good pay when in fact you're not. You know what I mean? Like maybe you could be getting paid a lot better for some, you actually enjoy doing more, but you might trick yourself into thinking like, ah, I'm on this like kind of crappy gig with guys I don't really care about, but like it pays enough. Yeah. But like you're, if you're good and you know, you're good and you spend the time honing your craft and all those kinds of things. And you know, you, you, you tick all the boxes along the way as a professional, then you should know your value. Well, guys, there you have it, my conversation with Travis Vance. Travis, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I had an awesome time talking with you. Everyone, go follow him on Instagram, at Travis Vance Music. And make sure to come back next week to hear my conversation with songwriter and guitarist Austin Taylor Smith. I want to give a big thank you to TBD Coffee Co. for being the official coffee of Starting Small Music. Check them out at tbdcoffeeco.com. Check out Starting Small Music on YouTube to see all the video content from interviews. And also, follow Starting Small Music on Instagram, at Starting Small Music, and let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast next. And remember, everyone starts small.